0: We're learning more and more about how our brains can be changed by overeating these highly palatable junk foods, and that can contribute to this cycle of addiction that we often see emerging. Welcome to the Good
1: Clean Nutrition Podcast, where healthcare professionals and health-minded consumers are provided with practical and helpful nutrition information on current and trending topics from subject matter experts. My name is Mary Purdy, and I'm an integrative eco-dietician nutritionist based in Seattle, Washington. Our topic today is the science of sugar addiction, a look at the latest research, which should be a very interesting conversation since so many individuals struggle with their relationship with sugar. I'm excited to introduce our special guest and a true pioneer in the field of food addiction, Dr. Nicole Avina. Dr. Avina is an acclaimed research neuroscientist, published author, sought-after speaker, and nutrition and diet expert whose seminal research jump-started the exploration into food addiction. She earned her PhD in neuroscience and psychology from Princeton University and postdoctoral fellowship in molecular biology at the Rockefeller University. She has authored over 90 scholarly journal articles and several books and book chapters on topics related to nutrition, addiction, eating disorders, and obesity. She's also an expert in diet during pregnancy, baby, toddler, and child nutrition. Welcome, Dr. Avina. It's great to meet
0: you. Oh, thanks. I'm so happy to be here. And this is such
1: a fascinating and and really hot topic. I'm curious to know what actually drove your interest to this niche on food addiction and specifically on, on sugar addiction.
0: Well, it's kind of a funny story. It was really a serendipitous thing. I was just starting graduate school at Princeton University, and I was talking with my advisor about you know what I might do for my dissertation, for my PhD project. And we had been talking about how there had been so much interest in understanding obesity and why people found that it was so difficult to regulate their body weight and to eat healthy diet. And one of the things that we started tossing around and talking about was this idea that, well, maybe it's not that people don't have willpower or that, you know, it's really the person's fault, but maybe it's something about the food. Maybe there's something about the food in our environment that is causing people to the overweight that's come, making them dependent on it or addicted to it. And so that's really how I got interested in this idea. It started off as a, a PhD project and it's kind of evolved into a career because, you know, I, I'm still working on my dissertation to some degree, even though I already got my PhD, but I'm still asking the same questions and really trying to better understand this topic area because it's so interesting.
1: It's such an ongoing process, too. And I love that you said that it's not about willpower because I have said that to patients so many times. It's not about some kind of a flaw in character, but looking at much, much more deep-rooted issues, whether it's chemistry or emotions or whatever the case may be, which we'll talk about. And, and before we actually dive into sugar addiction, what is your definition of food addiction?
0: Well, we've defined it based off of the criteria that the American Psychiatric Association has put out to define other types of addictions. And so there's criteria that are being used to diagnose someone as having an addiction to drugs or addiction to alcohol. And so through our research, we've essentially taken those same criteria, but applied them to food. And so there are things like you would imagine when you're thinking about someone who might be struggling with an addiction to drugs or alcohol. So binging, withdrawal signs, craving, you know, consuming more than intended, trying to quit, but not being able to using the substance, despite the fact that it can have physical or psychological harms to you. There's a variety of different criteria that have been applied. And we've essentially been using them to help us to better understand how food can fit into this addiction space.
1: Hmm. So it it really is. A, it's a struggle. It's a reliance more than just a, a choice to have a candy bar or a choice to have a certain kind of food.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, what the research has really shown is that this is a multifaceted disorder. This is something that involves a variety of different areas of the brain, a variety of different psychological aspects that can contribute to people's relationships with food. And I think we're seeing, you know, now more than ever that there's a lot that goes into deciding what you eat. It's not just about being hungry. It's about how anxious are you? How stressed are you? You know, how do you have a relationship with food? And what is your history with eating different types of palatable foods and junk foods? All of these things play a role and we're learning more and more about how our brains can be changed by overeating these highly palatable junk foods and that can contribute to this cycle of addiction that we often see emerging.
1: And it makes it seem so much more realistic and understandable for the person who's struggling with that, that they understand that there's something actually going on that maybe is beyond their control and it gives them a better sense of of, of perhaps empowerment as to what action to take around that. And. And I want to make sure that we are differentiating when we think of the word sugar, right? Because a lot of people think sugar and they think of just this lump thing, but there's different types of sugar. There's refined and processed sugar. There's naturally occurring sugars in fruits. There's sugar in grains, right? So what type of sugar are you referring to when you, when you are actually talking about this sugar addiction, quote unquote?
0: Great, great question, and something that's so important to clarify, because I think you're right that people sort of lump all the sugars together and kind of sometimes put them in this category that they're all bad, and that is not the case at all. When we talk about sugar addiction, we're talking about these refined, highly processed sugars, and so things like high fructose corn syrup, for example, and what we're finding is that sugar that occurs naturally or even you know refined sugar that's consumed in moderation does not have the same effect as these types of you know foods that we're finding to be very common in our society lately where it's excess amounts of sugar that's added to them what we're seeing from the research is that you know things like fruits that contain sugar but in you know acceptable amounts also contain fiber that can mitigate the effects that the sugar can have on our brain and our body. And they also contain other nutrients and they can be beneficial to our health. But we're really, you know, focusing on these highly processed foods that contain lots of added sugars and in many cases, multiple forms of added sugar. It's not necessarily just one type of sugar that we're finding is being added to these foods that people often struggle controlling their intake of.
1: And it's really important to look at that label too on food ingredients. When you see sugar, it may not just be about the uh, the refined sugar, it may be the natural sugar, but that, that important word is the added sugar when you're looking at those labels as well.
0: Absolutely. And I think we have a little bit more clarity now that we have you know new nutrition facts labels where people are having to disclose what amount of added sugar is in the product. It used to be the case that you kind of had to do your detective work and figure out how much sugar was in it just based off of the, you know, sugar that was in it, whether it's naturally occurring or added sugar. And so I think having that added sugar information can really be helpful to people because if you are trying to be mindful of your sugar intake, you now have some more clear data to go from off of the product labels.
1: And we're learning more than ever now the impact of refined sugar intake on our health and also the impact, actually, of sugar production on the environment. And with uh, the 2025 dietary guidelines, which are now recommending a limit on added sugar, I think people are becoming more aware of their sugar intake. And, And I would love to take a step back here and let's actually talk about some of these negative effects of this excessive sugar.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot. I mean, it's something that we're seeing now that there's been so much more research. The research has really just blossomed in this area. And lots of scientists are really trying to better understand the effects that too much sugar can have on our health and well-being. I mean, first and foremost, the one that we often hear a lot about is the fact that excess consumption of added sugar can increase body weight. It can lead to obesity, and that can contribute to a variety of different health conditions such as type 2 diabetes, such as increased risk for heart disease, increased risk for certain types of cancers, We're also learning more about the role that sugar plays in our immune system functioning. Now, this is something that, you know, especially over the past year or two has become something that many, many people are concerned about, making sure that their immune systems are working as well as they possibly can. And research is suggesting that excess sugar intake can actually be detrimental to your immune system health. And so trying to reduce sugar is one way in which you can help to bolster your immune system health and immune system function. And so it's really become the case that we're finding from the studies that sugar can have a negative impact on our health, not only in the immediacy in the sense that it can dampen our immune system, but it can also have long-term impacts on our health, putting us at risk for many of these lifestyle-related conditions that could be avoided if we were to change the way in which we approach our nutrition and exercise.
1: So increased risk for cardiovascular disease, issues with immune function. Uh, I would, I would uh, relate that as well to the microbiome, which we know um, relies on high fiber foods and, and can see an overgrowth of that bad bacteria with excess amounts of sugar, which also relates to our immune function. So those are really, really important pieces. And, and I think it might be important to clarify. That word excess, right, Doctor Avino, What when we say what is excess of sugar? Someone's going to say, "What does that mean? How much sugar am I allowed to have?" What's what's what are your thoughts on that?
0: It's such a great question, and I don't have the best answer for it, to be honest, because it's sort of like the term moderation, like everything in moderation. Well, what does moderation mean? You know, moderation to me might be different than moderation is to you. But when people ask me, you know, for a number to go off of in terms of how much sugar is too much sugar, I tell them that even if they think they're not consuming a lot of added sugar, they're probably consuming more than they realize. And so it's always a good idea to try to reduce where you can. What do we see now in terms of the guidelines is that around, you know, 8 to 10 teaspoons a day of added sugar is what seems to be recommended depending on the organization that you're looking at but I think that that could actually be reduced even less. I think that, you know, the goal should really be to try to reduce the amount of sugar in your diet from added sugars in all the places that you can because it's in so many of the foods that we consume that you might not even realize you're consuming it. I have a presentation that I often give where I'll kind of go through some of the foods that people commonly consume and show how much added sugar is in them. And people are really shocked when they realize that you can be over the recommended amount of added sugar for the day before you even leave the breakfast table. If you just look at coffee creamer and maybe a yogurt and, you know, maybe some orange juice, then you've already probably passed your limit.
1: Yeah. It's, it's amazing how easy it adds up. So even like, you know, a a can of Coke is already at 30 grams of sugar or 35 grams of sugar, depending on that, that size. So you can add up quite easily. And you have studied the science of sugar, on the brain and I would love for you to outline what actually happens in the brain when someone consumes a large amount of that refined processed sugar.
0: Well, it's really fascinating. So there's so many things happening at one time. What we've seen is that when someone tastes sugar just simply puts it in their mouth and you know, has it on their tongue, that already starts this cascade of events that sends signals to different parts of our brain and it also sends signals to our gut telling us that it's rewarding and pleasurable. And so what happens in the brain is that there are signals that are sent up the brain stem through the primitive brain regions to the reward areas of the brain. And these reward or pleasure centers of the brain will then release neurochemicals like dopamine and the opioids. And these essentially send the signal that this tastes delicious. This is really good. Let's do it again. Let's have more. Let's have more. And over time, What ends up happening is that people develop tolerance, just like with other drugs of abuse, like alcohol. People develop tolerance to alcohol, where maybe the first time they consumed alcohol, they felt a little euphoria from having just one alcoholic beverage. But the more you consume, the more you need to feel good again. And the same thing is happening with sugar. So that's why, you know, people might not feel that great if they just have one cookie. They might feel like they need to have three or four or five if they have this diet that's rich in added sugars because our brain develops tolerance to the effect that the sugar has on the pleasure system. And so that's where people can get into trouble. And that's where we can see that excessive consumption can occur. It's really about this addiction cycle and about trying to understand, you know, where we can limit ourselves so that you can still enjoy the things you want to consume, but you don't fall into this zone where you're actually consuming things just to get to this bliss point of feeling. Feeling pleasure from them.
1: That is fascinating. For years, I I have counseled hundreds and thousands of patients who struggle with sugar cravings. And as you mentioned up front, it's not always about willpower. There are other factors at play, emotions, stress, fatigue, a lack of balance in meals, um, dehydration, right, to name just a few. What else do you see as primary drivers of those sugar cravings that people often complain about?
0: Well, I think a lot of it Often comes from displaced emotions, meaning that people will often be upset about something or anxious about something, and they turn to food as a way to self soothe or to self medicate. It's really, you know, a socially acceptable way to make yourself feel better. And I think that that's where sugar plays a role in the lives of many people. If you think about it, you know, if you, break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend and, you know, you're upset and depressed about it, you don't say, oh, let me go have a salad. You say, oh, let me have a plain ice cream to make myself feel better. And I I think that there is this relationship between the inability to appropriately cope with different types of emotions and stressors that we face on a day-to-day basis And the relationship that many people have with foods that have lots of added sugars in them. And so I find that that's something that many people, once they become aware of it, can correct it. When they realize, you know, oh, I'm craving sugars. Is it linked to something that's happening in my life right now? Or is it linked to a stressor that I'm experiencing? That can really change the way in which people approach whether or not they're going to give into that craving because they realize that it's not actually a craving. It's really more of just a maladaptive way of coping with something.
1: Mm, absolutely. And and sometimes that can even go all the way back into childhood, right? We think of the the comfort foods that we were given as kids or when we cried, our parents maybe bought us ice cream or gave a, a lollipop to make us feel better. So there's so much entrenched in our childhood. And, and to go a little deeper on that, since we're recognizing adverse childhood experiences um, and trauma, what about those kinds of childhood traumas that might actually lead to other dependencies in life, has there also been research to show that sugar addiction can be one of those dependencies that may occur?
0: Absolutely. I think that what we're finding from the research is that trauma in early life, even trauma in later life can put people at risk for developing maladaptive behaviors, one of which is addiction. And I don't think that addiction is something that we can any longer really just compartmentalized into drugs and alcohol. I think we're realizing that addiction can take many forms, one of which can be to food, just like we have addiction to gambling, just like there's sex addiction. There are many types of addictions that can manifest. It's not something that is reserved for just drugs and alcohol anymore. And I think that sugar plays a role in this process too. And for some people, they end up using sugar and food as a way to cope with these childhood traumas or experiences that they've had. And in many ways, it's uh, another way to self-medicate. And I think that it's important for people who have experienced traumas and they, you know, start to realize that, wow, maybe I am using food to cope, that there are alternatives to have more appropriate types of coping mechanisms that you can be taught and that these are things that you can, you know, Rectify so it's not something that doesn't have an answer, and I think that that can be hopeful and promising for people who maybe find themselves in that position
1: and so from what you are saying, I'm gathering that there's a, there's a difference right between sh- craving something sweet and really having a sugar addiction and and it sounds like the symptoms that are indicating a true addiction is is this sense of reliance and it's a coping strategy it's the way that people are are able to to get through an a a difficult situation. Anything else that would be a sign or a symptom that helps us to really identify that this is a true sugar addiction and not just, Hey, I want something sweet after dinner.
0: Yeah, I mean, everybody has cravings for sugar or feels like having something sweet once in a while. That's a natural part of the appetitive process. And I think it can be difficult for some people to sort of decide, well, where do we draw the line between just liking something sweet and wanting to have something sweet once in a while to having it be an addiction? And I think that for me, the hallmark criteria is whether or not it's life disrupting. Now, this could be difficult when it comes to food because. You know, food socially acceptable to consume everywhere you go. And there's often, you know, ease of access to get access to these highly processed foods that we don't typically see with things like drugs and alcohol. But I think that if somebody is wondering whether or not they're coping with a food addiction versus just, you know, having maybe a real big sweet tooth, the hallmark sign for me is. Is it causing you some distress in your life? Is it, if you're thinking that, you know, you have an addiction, then there's a chance that you do. And so I think that that should really be kind of the point at which people start to think about talking to a dietitian or talking to their doctor, talking to some medical professional who can help to guide them and advise them because. Much like other conditions, if left untreated for a long enough time, it can be even more difficult to correct and it can lead to a lot of the other health conditions that we talked about earlier as well.
1: I'm so glad you clarified that for people because I think it's important to understand that craving sugar, craving something sweet can be natural. And I had a patient who actually kept on saying to me, oh, I I have this sugar addiction. I'm addicted to sugar. I can't stop. I can't stop. And when we started to look through her dietary recall, looking what she was eating at uh, during the, the day, we discovered that she had very, very little protein actually in all over her meals, and as soon as we got more protein in there, and actually more fiber as well, just to fill her up, to satiate her, that completely eradicated, or at least very much diminished, her craving for sugar later in the day. And so that was a, a real example of, hey, this is not an addiction. This is just about finding a, a way to balance out some of your macronutrient distribution, and that was um, quite quite insightf- insightful for her to, to understand.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I've experienced similar things, you know, in my practice, too, where people often have a nutritional imbalance that they're just not aware of. And I think, you know, sometimes this comes with our diet culture, where we're really focused on calories and, you know, making sure that we're not eating too much fat, or, you know, reducing, you know, our carbohydrates, whatever, you know, the The diet is that someone's following. And again, I often advise people to shy away from those types of diets because they end up causing you to then be deficient in other things that can lead to these cravings that can make you feel like you're addicted to sugar because you're craving it. The reason why people often crave sugar in many cases if they're dieting is because their body is craving carbohydrates. And so, you know, that's ultimately one way in which we can make sure we get carbohydrates is to crave them.
1: Absolutely. I, I often say to people that, you know, if you haven't eaten a, a meal that's actually satiated you, your body's gonna go for the first thing that it sees that will give it energy with the least amount of effort. And that's almost always some kind of refined sugar or processed carbohydrate. So and this happens a lot in childhood, right? This this can begin early. And I know that you've got a background in childhood nutrition. So when it comes to introducing sweet foods at an early age, what's your advice? What's a story that you might have around how parents or child caregivers can approach this with young kids?
0: Yeah, this is something that I've been really interested in over the past several years. And I actually wrote a book on this topic called What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler that was, to me, born out of necessity. Because when I was pregnant with my daughter, and starting to, you know, kind of think about okay, you know, it's time to start thinking about baby food and planning out how to introduce solids to her. I found it really interesting that there wasn't a lot of updated useful information for new parents out there in terms of what you should feed your baby. And we now know that there's so much research that suggests that limiting sugars early in life is a very important thing. And many of our children these days are basically being bombarded with sugar from an early point in life. And this starts off with baby food. A lot of the times, if you go into a grocery store nowadays and look at the baby food aisle, you'll see that most of the baby food is sweetened with some sort of uh, fruit puree. So babies aren't really experiencing the taste of just plain peas or the taste of, you know, just plain butternut squash. It's often sweetened with a fruit. And so we're starting their little palates off expecting things to be sweet even from six months of age and i think that that's something that you know we need to help to educate parents about because we know that it's important to get fruits and vegetables and other protein forms into our baby's diets but the way in which we introduce them can also be very important we want to do it in a way that's not going to cause us to basically have our kids hooked on the taste of sweet from a very early age I think you may have
1: just busted some myths there, Dr. Avina, because I think the impression is that kids prefer something a little sweet so they don't make that uh, shriveled up face where they taste something that's bitter. So that's fascinating for for sharing that. I'm sure people will find that valuable. So you've talked about babies and kids and how to approach uh, sugar cravings and and issues around sugar with them. But let's talk about adults a little bit as well. What are some of some of your best approaches to effectively address sugar addiction um, for short term or for long term?
0: Well, I think, you know, for me, the biggest thing we can do is to prevent it from happening happening from the beginning. And so I think that education, working with, you know, school districts to really educate young children about the dangers of eating too much sugar and why they need to take it seriously is something that is very important and working with parents to better understand that too. I think that you know if we can prevent this from happening at an early age, then that's gonna be all the better. But when we talk about adults in terms of you know how to manage a sugar addiction, I think one of the first things I recommend is that people not try to quit sugar cold turkey because that really sets people up for failure. And so you're better off making small incremental steps and looking at those as wins because that's what they are. And so I advise people if let's just say you you know are a big soda drinker. Well, you know what? Let's think about what we can swap out. So instead of having soda, you're having something that doesn't have added sugar in it. And really just kind of one by one going through your diet and picking out the foods that are high in added sugar and replacing them with something that you enjoy equally, but just doesn't have as much added sugar in it or any at all, if, if we can. And I really think that strategy works. And we know from psychology that, you know, reducing harm has its benefits. And if somebody can simply just, you know, swap out one thing in their diet... In a day, that's still reducing the harm. And so I think we need to have an approach that's going to be sustainable and realistic and not have this all or nothing approach, because I think that that contributes to people failing and to people just sort of saying, oh, forget it. This is too hard. I can't cut out all the sugar. Well, you don't have to cut out all the sugar. You can just try to reduce it and make substitutions where appropriate. And that's still a step toward improving your health.
1: I couldn't agree more. I, I think trying to go full full throttle on something like that is virtually impossible. And baby steps is what I'm hearing from you, as well as celebrating those successes. If you're able to cut back from three Mountain Dews to, to to one Mountain Dew, I mean that's already a great a great shift. And what about different types of sugar? We've talked about refined sugar, but what about the natural sweeteners, honey, maple syrup, even molasses, um, or non nutritive sweeteners like stevia? What What are your thoughts on those as options?
0: Yeah, I think that there's a place for all of these different products in our environment. It's just a matter of an individual's personal nutrition goals and you know how they can possibly use these types of sweeteners in their diet to help them or whether or not those types of sweeteners are going to harm them. Now, I've worked with people in the past who find that if they switch to something like monk fruit or use stevia, that it can help them to lessen the amount of added sweeteners that they have in their diet and to help them to really serve as almost like a crutch to get off of All the added sugars that they normally consume. But then other people find that, you know, they don't necessarily serve as good of a purpose because they still have that sweet craving and are still craving, you know, sweetness, even when they consume these other types of sweeteners. My advice and my gut instinct on this is that I think we should really just try to focus on reducing the sweetness in our diet because I think that if we want to look at this from the neuroscience standpoint, we know that these other types of alternative sweeteners, they still release dopamine, they still have the same effect on the reward system in the brain, they still elicit pleasure in our reward system. And so if you're truly struggling with an addiction to sugar, By swapping in one of these other types of sweeteners, you're not going to really correct the neuroscience problem. You're not going to correct what's happening in your brain. The better bet is to try to just reduce the amount of sweetness we have in our diet. And that's going to help to change the brain in a way that's going to reduce the cravings and to help people to get on a path where they're not struggling in this addiction cycle any longer.
1: And do you feel the same way about vegetables that are considered sweet like that butternut squash or the sweet potato or beets, things like that, that still have an element of sweetness to them?
0: I actually find that vegetables that are sweet to me and same with fruit, like whole fruits. If people are having a sweet craving, I would really say, hey, instead of, you know, going for something that has stevia in it, why don't you have an apple or why don't you have some grapes? Because, again, that's a naturally occurring sugar that is in balance with other things that we need in order to have a healthy diet. So it's gonna have fiber, it's gonna have other nutrients that are going to mitigate the effects that the fructose and the sucrose can have, or excuse me, the fructose and the glucose can have on our body and our brain. And so again, I think that, you know, you'll never hear me tell somebody you can't eat a fruit or a vegetable. Though to me, those are are really, you know, the the sweetness of our environment that we're really meant to consume. And I think that for many people who have been overeating processed sugars and processed foods for many, many years that start to slowly remove them from their diet, they look at sweet potatoes as a blessing. And to them, it's like dessert almost because they don't realize how sweet they were until you actually don't have all this artificial sugar and artificial sweeteners in your diet. You can really taste the sweetness in vegetables and many of the fruits that are out there. Mm, Absolutely. You're making me
1: want to go and bake up a sweet potato right now.
0: (laughs) Have you seen sugar cravings
1: or sugar addiction differ at all by gender, age, or race?
0: We have done some studies about this and looked at it, and there's been some work that's done in the literature, and it doesn't seem to show a difference. This seems to be something that, you know, we're seeing in different genders, different races. And Again, I think women seem to be more willing to admit that they have a sugar addiction and more willing to talk about it. But we see that it seems to be equally represented across sexes. One of the things that we have noted is that when we look at the demographic breakdown of people who struggle with food addiction, that an interesting thing that comes up is that people who have a comorbid condition like binge eating disorder or obesity tend to have higher rates of food addiction. Um, But we don't really see any differences in terms of, you know, some of the other demographics that we've looked at.
1: And what role does artificial sweeteners play in all of this? What are your opinions on those, like uh, um, aspartame, saccharin, things like that?
0: I think that these kind of fall into the same spot, if not maybe a little bit behind the um, other alternative sweeteners that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. I think that for many people, they're attracted to this idea of artificial sweeteners because they're kind of billed as being, you know, calorie free. And, you know, you can still have your sweetness without the added calories. And it seems like a dream come true. But in reality, I think that many people find that using them, again, doesn't break that addiction cycle and we've seen this in the research, that those artificial sweeteners can still release dopamine. It's really the sweet taste that's associated with this sugar addiction and the rewarding uh, effect that we see happening in the brain in terms of the neurochemicals. And so much like what I would recommend with a lot of the alternative sweeteners that are out there, I really think you know limiting your access to artificial sweeteners can help to mitigate these effects of sugar addiction. If you really want to get off of sugar and really want to recover from the effects that sugar can have on your body and your brain, then I think cutting out the artificial sweeteners or certainly reducing them is important to think about as well. Great. And
1: you mentioned early on in the show that this is is an ongoing research project for you almost like you're still writing your dissertation it would be great to know where is the latest research on sugar addiction headed
0: well for us i think that you know i got involved with this 15 years ago or almost more than that now And it started off as establishing whether or not this was a phenomenon. Is sugar addiction real? Is this something we can measure? And we had to develop a model of that because there wasn't any research on it when we started doing it. There had been anecdotal reports of people you know, struggling with sugar, saying that they felt like they were addicted to carbohydrates. But our lab was really the first to show that sugar can produce the criteria that are associated with addiction as we as we know it. And so I think that now that we're kind of at the point in the research where I'm interested mostly in the genesis of this, where does it begin? And so where can we have this intervention point to help prevent it from happening to begin with? And so we've been doing a lot of work looking at prenatal access, to sugar-rich foods? What happens during pregnancy and what kind of foods that women are exposed to or eating during pregnancy? How can that have a role on the fetus and the growing baby that could potentially lead to sugar addiction later in life? And what we're finding from the research studies is that excess sugar during pregnancy can have a detrimental effect, not only on the fact that Babies are then born wanting more sugar, craving sugar. But we see that there's changes in DNA, changes in the dopamine system, even before the babies are born and they've even tasted sugar themselves just through what they're receiving via the prenatal exposure to these types of foods. And so I think this is an important topic. I have two kids of my own. I've been pregnant twice. And not once has a doctor said to me, you might want to reduce your sugar intake. They are concerned about not gaining too much weight and you know maybe making sure you're eating a healthy diet. But there really isn't a lot of information out there about sugar and what it can do during pregnancy. And I think it's something that you know we really need to focus on understanding more about because it's being linked to a lot of different health outcomes later on, not just body weight. Well, you are a true
1: pioneer, Dr. Avina. And I think a lot of the folks listening today are going to get great ideas around how to manage some of these sugar cravings they're seeing in their patients or in themselves. So thank you so much for your time and really thoughtful responses. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been great.
1: To learn more about the science of sugar addiction on brain health, be sure to visit healthcare.com. to check out Dr. Avina's webinar, What Sugar Does to Your Brain? The New Science of Sugar Addiction, which is provided on demand as part of Orgain's professional education webinar series, which as with all of Orgain's healthcare webinars, um, has been approved for one continuing education credit for registered dietitian nutritionists and for dietetic technicians. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, sponsored by Orgain, where we'll interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition-focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. That's it for now. Thanks so much.